Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Kirkus Review calls Varian Johnson's latest novel, quote, a candid and powerful reckoning of history. The Parker inheritance grapples with the realities of racism in the United States, both past and present. The book is about ugly deeds and the secrets that towns and families keep for decades. It is also a gripping mystery, and you won't want to put it down. Varian Johnson is a rare talent, and it's my great pleasure to welcome him to our studio. Hi, Varian. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. We're really excited you're here. You have a brand new book, The Parker Inheritance. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. It's a mix between The Westing Game and The Watson School of Birmingham, 1963. At its heart, it's a puzzle mystery uh, where the reader can be actively engaged in trying to solve the mystery along with the characters. But it's also a book that explores race relations both today and back in the 1950s and 1960s. It takes place in a small town in South Carolina where a girl named Candace finds a letter addressed to her grandmother. The letter speaks of a mystery, a puzzle, and whomever solves it can win a bunch of money for the city and for themselves. And then while Candace and Brandon, the boy from across the street, are trying to solve the mystery, the book flashes back and we see the past and this one family at the center of this mystery, the Washington family, and how they came to be, how they came to Lambert, and uh, of this big incident that happened that drove them away from the city. And then all around this, there's this question about who is James Parker, who is a person who created this mystery that, that no one seems to be able to find. An intricate tale. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, lots of moving pieces, for sure. What inspired the story? I... Loved the Western game when I was growing up, and I reread it a lot when I was writing The Great Green Heist, because Ellen Raskin does a really great job with juggling multiple characters and omniscient point of view. So that became kind of a blueprint for that book. But as I read it over and over again, I was just amazed at how well it stood up, how the mystery, the puzzle plays out. It's, it's simple, but yet very sophisticated. And I thought it would be really cool to try, to try to recreate that in book form. So now I'm saying that I had the idea for this puzzle for a long time and I had the pieces of the puzzle, but that wasn't enough to make it work. It wasn't a strong enough concept. And I had this other book that I'd been tinkering with, kind of a multi-generational story about a family. And at some point I realized the two could work together. And I was surprised how well they work together. They just really fit really seamlessly and, and a couple of tweaks here and there. And that's how it came about. Well, this is a middle grade story. As you say, it takes place partly in the 1950s in the South. For African-Americans there, that was a very, very rough time. You don't sugarcoat the issues of racial inequality and injustice and violence. Could you talk a little bit about how you approach that for this, especially for this age group? Sure. I, you know, when I was writing the book, the goal was to not sugarcoat it, was to be as truthful as I can. To respect the audience because kids can handle tough stuff and they should be able to handle things that, that pushes them out of their comfort zone. I had a lot of scenes where I didn't necessarily fade to black on the scene if something horrible is going to happen, but I tried to leave space where 
the reader could imagine what someone is saying or, or what they're seeing and, and try to lay it out, but leave enough gaps where some readers will will think something's happening and know something's bad is happening. Other readers who maybe who have been exposed to more knows that something really, really bad is happening and understands the concept well. So again, the goal is not to sugarcoat, to be truthful as I can, but to leave enough space for the reader to bring their own interpretation to it to get the weight of what was happening. It is a fictional tale, but how did you conduct research, I'm wondering, just to sort of set the time period and to bring yourself back, to bring the reader back to that time? You know, a lot of different ways. I did more research for this book than probably in the other book. The book is inspired by my hometown of Florence, South Carolina, in many ways, the feel of the town at least. And I ended up going back home and doing research and talking to a number of elders who graduated from Wilson High School in 1956, 1957, 1958. That was the Negro Black High School back then. I actually graduated from high school as well, too. And I wanted to get a sense of what the city was like, what was it like to be at that school, understanding the city, but also understanding the pride in the school and the community and and what was happening. How did different races get along? What where was their tension? Where was it where was there not tension? I also looked at a lot of yearbooks. I wanted to get a sense of how classes were organized. I did a listen to a lot of interviews by people who had gone to historically black colleges and black high schools in uh, the forties, fifties and sixties to get a sense of what it felt like for them. And I did a lot of research too just to see what was going on in the world and in the news. You know, there's, there's this secret tennis game that happens in the book that's a very big deal. And as I was putting it together, I thought about Althea Gibson winning Wimbledon in 1957 and thinking about the pride in the one hand that a community could feel, a nation could feel on that. New York City, there's this great ticker tape parade and there's a great picture of it in the New York Times, but also how some people could be very upset about it with this tennis being seen as such an elite, an elitist sport and someone of color entering and excelling that just sets up a clash in ways that, that we see in football and basketball, but I just want to explore it with a different, a different sport. What were some of the stories that moved or surprised you most about that time, talking to your relatives and listening to interviews? You know, in some ways, the younger generations got along very well between black and white. There, were, there was there was an acknowledgement that they were the same and that they were different and how they were different, but but they got along well. But it wasn't till they got older that there was more pressure to it, I guess, more of a divide. I think the way someone described it to me, the parents had a certain mindset, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't hang out with these people. The children didn't have that mindset, but they grew into that mindset after enough time being exposed to it from both sides of parents. I was also really surprised, I, I didn't realize it, but there were, at Wilson, there were few white teachers there until the 1960s, even after integration happened. And the idea that integration happening in 1954, at least by decree, by law, but still actually being implemented. It took years in some places for that to actually happen. And there was resistance on on both sides to that for good and bad reasons. I just found that really, really interesting. Now, fast forward to your own high school experience. How was that different? Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally different, but also similar in some ways. Certainly by the time I went to Wilson, it was an integrated school. We had black and white students, although majority black. But there was this sense of, of pride in the community about the school, being 
a graduate of Wilson in the African-American community meant something. You know, we always rooted for Wilson. There's this big homecoming that we have every year and people come back from all over the country to come back and, and participate in homecoming and alumni reunions and, and things like that. My dad's class's 50th reunion is coming up next year and they're already planning what they're going to do. My mom's is the year after, you know, it's all this big, it's a big deal. People coming back together. It's a, it's a great feel of family. Um, and it kind of, I don't know, supersedes everything else. Like I am a Wilson graduate. That is just as much a part of me as my college degree or my engineering degree or anything else that really shaped in many ways who I am. Yes. You have an engineering degree. (laughs) (laughs) I loved writing. I, I've always loved writing, but I loved math and science as well, too. And actually, math and science came easier than writing. You know how this, you have a, you're writing stuff, you're writing for class, and you have rules you have to follow. But creative writing, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, is about taking those rules and, and twisting them, turning them, breaking them, ignoring them a little bit to create this authentic kind of characters, authentic authorial voice. And I struggled with that a lot. I didn't break the rules. If a sentence had certain things in it, my sentences were going to have that. So while my writing was very good in some ways, it was also, it felt the same every way. I couldn't figure out how to bring my own, put my own self into it in a, in a meaningful way. I love math and science. It was easier. Certainly no one was complaining about me going to school to major in civil engineering versus creative writing, but I couldn't shake it. So I, I did both for, for a long time. This story is breathtaking. I have to say, I would love for you to read from the opening passage, which is about Candace's grandmother. If you could cue it up and tell our listeners a little bit about the context. Okay, so really all you need to know is that the book, again, takes place over multiple points in time. This first chapter happens in 2007. The majority of the book happens in uh, roughly 2017, the present day. But the book also goes to the past as far back as the early 1900s all the way to to present day, where we see both kind of stories combined together. Abigail Caldwell is Candace's, our main character's grandmother. Chapter one, Abigail Caldwell, October 17th, 2007. Abigail Caldwell stared at the letter. The letter stared back. The paper was bright, crisp, smooth, like the pages of a new book that had yet to be cracked open. The letter with a small, black, single-spaced words and sharp edges, spoke of a great injustice. It was written by a man who did not exist, and it promised an incredible fortune to the city of Lambert, South Carolina, if its puzzle could be solved. Abigail refolded the letter, then placed it in her purse. Dust was beginning to set, and apart from a handful of teens playing basketball, Vickers Park was empty. She sat on the bench outside of the Enoch Washington Memorial Tennis Courts. A small crew had already removed the rusted fence surrounding the courts, and was now carrying over jackhammers. A large yellow backhoe loomed in the distance. Miss Caldwell, you sure you want us to start tonight? The chief of maintenance asked, handing her some earmuffs. We're going to have to pay overtime, and the noise alone will. I know, she said. I'll deal with any fallout tomorrow. She couldn't risk starting the operation during daylight hours. It would draw too much attention. The chief adjusted his hard hat. Which court do you want us to start with, he asked. That one, she said, pointing to the one on the left, is that directly across from her park bench, from what she hoped was the final clue. And it would be mighty helpful if I knew what we were looking for, he said. I agree, Odell. She rose from the bench. Maybe a chest? A crate? I don't know. 
but I'm sure we'll recognize it when we see it. Once the lights have been erected, the crew began jackhammering, breaking up the green tennis courts into chunks. Then came the backhoe, its engine groaning through the night. Abigail stood nearby, flashlight in hand, watching as the machine scooped out pile after pile of rubble and dirt. With each dump, she reminded herself of all the clues from the letter. The photos. The money had to be there. Really, really sets the stage. I kept wanting to turn the page. So Abigail's granddaughter, Candace, we next meet her. She's living in Abigail's home for the summer. Her grandmother has died a few years earlier. She's also coping with her parents' divorce. Could you talk about that theme running through the book? I wanted to talk about loss, I guess, in certain ways and, and how things change. And we had to deal with that change. Candace didn't ask for her parents to get divorced. I think it's the best thing for them. Hopefully it is. But she's the one that has to deal with these changes, and it causes some really negative changes for her. I think that's the case in a number of ways throughout the book. And I think with Candace's parents, they wanted something to be true that really wasn't. And they were, I don't know, living a lie, for lack of a better word. And I think there's a lot of places in the book where, where characters live a lie to try to perpetuate this mood, this myth, this truth, to have this best life, this life that they envision themselves or they want themselves to have at great cost to them personally and emotionally. So I wanted that thread to be with the book. I, I also wanted it to be somewhat realistic. I think um, in many of my other books, parents are not divorced. They haven't been divorced, I don't think, in any of my other books. And it's a real thing that happens. So I wanted to tackle that and show Candace having a relationship with both her mother and her father good relationships, strong relationships, even though they are divorced, and and seeing her parents parents struggle with that while still trying to do the best for her. In the book, there are fissures in families and in the city and in the country, and you're offering kids a way to find their way through those fissures and still have a full life. Yeah, I I think so. At least I, I hope so. There's a lot in the book. There's a lot of things happening here. And I want readers to latch on to what's important, what, what resonates with them. Um, some kids will really resonate with the puzzle aspect of it. Some kids will love the historical piece. Some kids will really resonate with the divorce piece. Some kids will love the excitement of the tennis game. There's all these things there that I, that I want kids to latch on to. And one kid may not latch on to everything, but at least maybe something here, something something there to help, I don't know, ask, ask questions, help to... To, to probe and, and maybe have a, a young reader thinking about how this applies to their life and, and the real world. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about a, a personal essay you wrote about you and your twin brother and an encounter you had with law enforcement with, that was so powerful and moving. Could you tell our listeners about that and how that affected you? Sure. So my brother, my older brother, by five minutes, even though he thinks differently sometimes, Older by five minutes, he is selected to go to this leadership academy in um, Florida for a week. And I am jealous, just raging jealous because I wanted to go. He was the only student selected from our high school to go, one of the few selected students selected from uh, the state to go. So he's there for a week, enjoying Florida. I'm miserable at home. He lands back in the small airport in Florence, South Carolina on that Saturday or Sunday. My parents were working, so I had to go pick him up. And I pick him up, and I'm still very mad. And he could almost tell that I'm mad. He's just rubbing it in with the way he walks off the plane. He's got these fake aviator glasses he whips off. So we do this kind of lame, kind of bro hug, lukewarm thing, and uh, we grab his bag, and we go to the car. 
As we're putting the, the bag in the car, a man walks up to us. He explains that he's a plainclothes police officer. He flashes his badge. And then he tells us that he wants to check our bag because he suspects that we're drug smugglers. So we take a step back. We let him check the bag in the trunk. We know we're not hiding anything. It, it never even crossed our minds to say no. Uh, it just seemed like that's, that's what you do. So we let him check things. And as he's looking through and obviously not finding anything, he starts to explain why he stopped us. And he says, well, you know, it looks like you guys didn't really like each other, didn't know each other, hadn't had never met before. So that's really kind of what I look for with, with drug smugglers, you know, someone picking someone up and someone new coming in. And then that's when we knew he was lying. I mean, we're identical twins. We looked not exactly alike, but we looked pretty close. We, we were clearly twins, certainly brothers. But in his mind, he couldn't see any other reason for two black boys to be at the airport. We must be drug smugglers to be there because why else? It never crossed his mind that my brother could be there for something important coming from this prestigious leadership conference. My brother and I graduated as co-valedictorians the next year of our high school class. That police officer saw none of that. He saw thugs. He saw the enemy. He saw the other. He saw something that had to be regulated, that had to be controlled, dominated. That's just a horrible feeling for, for someone to see you as only this thing just because of of the way you look, of your of your race, of your gender. But that happens so much. And it's important. Preconceived notions are what helps keep people safe. But in many ways, it kept him safe and put us in danger. And he was never in danger in the first place. But that, that in, the, in the best way with him not finding anything and letting us go on our way, it could have been much worse as we've seen here in the news with all these murders. I'm not even going to call them anything else. Murders of young black men and women by police, by people in power. Just that idea of perception is so important. People seeing what they want to see and how it puts people of color and women in so much danger. And I wanted to, to play with that notion of perception, of what we bring to a situation and try to subvert that a little bit to, to give readers something to think about with these characters, with how they try to look at those perceptions, how they try to use them to their advantage, try to look and act and be a different way, but what does that cost them emotionally? We certainly see it in present time with Brandon when he's dealing with bullying and, and things along those lines. And, and we see it in the past as well. These characters making sacrifices for the greater good for, for their family, but at great personal cost to them psychologically and emotionally. And it would just be great if we could work harder at seeing people for, for who they are past the gender, uh, sexual orientation, uh, ability, race, whatever that is, to get to know the person underneath. Do you still feel like the other yourself in 2018? Oh, for sure. I totally do. I, I do. I think it would be hard as a person of color not to. I still certainly feel it when I'm out and I'm looked at a certain way or questioned. In my engineering career, there were many times when people would ask who was in charge, and I would be in charge, and they would be surprised. They wouldn't expect uh, a person of color to be a professional engineer designing bridges all over the, the country. But people have these notions that they bring into it. I spoke at my daughter's kindergarten class last year, and it was really great just because I wanted them to see a black man in a different way. The news has a certain perception that that what of what they sh often show of people of color. 
And people's parents have these preconceived notions that they carry with them too of who is dangerous, who is scary, who should be avoided. And I want them to see, hey, this is someone who is a dad who writes books that you guys like to read. I'm a real living person because 15, 20 years from now, the kids in that class are going to be adults. And some of them are going to be adults in positions of power. And they're going to be police officers. They're going to be lawyers. They're going to be people hiring other people. And I want them to hopefully remember that, you know what? Forget these preconceived notions of whomever else is in the room or, or, or whatever else your parents have told you or you've seen on the news. These people who are not like you are still real people. They bring a lot of value. And I think it's important to see that the younger we can get that ingrained in, in our children, the earlier we can get that ingrained in our children, the better chance we have of trying to combat some of these negative stereotypes. It must be a good feeling to go into the schools and have the children see you and yeah. look up to you and you read to them. It was it was really fun. I mean, my daughter Savannah got the kick out of it. She got to be, we're famous now, apparently. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. You've always been famous. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Barry, and it's really been a wonderful to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so, so much for having me. Now, tell me what you're working on next before we let you go. That is a great question. I am working on a graphic novel called Twins. It's about two twin girls who are starting middle school. Maureen and Francine, at least that's their names right now. Francine is the older twin by two minutes. She wants more of her independence. Maureen is younger. She's really enjoyed having this life with her sister, not being apart. And now she's forced to be in all these classes separate from her sister. She thinks it's a scheduling fluke, but it turns out that it was done on purpose by her parents and actually by Francine. Francine, her older sister, wanted the separation. And Maureen gets very, very upset about it. And through a couple of circumstances, they end up running against each other for class president. And then that's when hijinks ensue. That's when all hell breaks loose. Well, it sounds great. We'll really look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks again to Varian Johnson for joining us. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the Parker inheritance and all of Varian Johnson's work, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Don't miss an episode of Scholastic Reads. Find us and subscribe in your favorite podcast app, and each episode will automatically be delivered to your phone. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.